0: welcome to EU Today, a podcast from the Center for European Studies, a Jean Monnet Center of Excellence at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you to the Erasmus Plus Program of the European Commission, the EU Delegation to the U.S., and the U.S. Department of Education for supporting our center and its programs. On this podcast, we sit down with scholars and policy leaders to discuss pressing issues facing the European Union. We hope you enjoy it. My name is Mackenzie Hansen, and I'm a Euro major at the Center for European Studies. Dr. Ingo Peters is currently a visiting scholar at the John Monet Center of Excellence at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is teaching a course on transatlantic relations for the transatlantic master's program. Prior to arriving at UNC, Dr. Peters was an associate professor and senior lecturer at Freie Universität Berlin and the executive director of the Center for Transnational Relations foreign and security policy until September 2022. He holds a PhD from the Freya Universität Berlin and has taught and published on issues related to German foreign policy, European and international security, transatlantic relations, and IR theory. Dr. Peters had also been involved in EU Horizon 2020 research endeavors as a PI or member of the advisory board. In addition, during his time at Freya, he had been the university's representative to the European-American University Consortium for the EuroMasters since 1995 and for the Transatlantic Master's program since its beginning in 1996, as well as other international master programs and university consortia.
1: We talk about it, uh, we are talking about the Transatlantic Alliance in the first place. And definitely if you have something on the agenda like uh, the war of aggression of Russia against the Ukraine. This is, you know, uh, bringing us back to the very fundamentals of alliance theory or the basic books on alliance policy making. You know, if you have an external threat as evident as now with the Russian aggression against Ukraine, uh, you can uh, almost, almost 100% be sure that NATO partners or alliance partners will stick together. That the cohesion will be given. You know, at least. Uh, first sight, maybe if it uh, goes uh, on for a while, then some cracks might become visible. And uh, I think we are now in this phase of the development of the war and the development of the responses coming from NATO uh, and NATO partners uh, that we will also have as part of our story of our analysis, talk about uh, some uh, cracks in, 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 in the front lines. Uh, here and, uh, however, overall, uh, you know this is the case for having an alliance and uh, ideal. Typically, uh, they first of all stand together.
0: Mm-hmm. Very sensible. Okay. Um, so let's let's jump off here. Um, in the first section, we'll talk about the internal implications for NATO. Um, so first and foremost. Um, what new strategies are necessary for NATO to adopt in order to address threats posed by Russia?
1: Well, I, I think uh, the tricky word here is really the new, you know, since uh, if you have been Uh, with security studies for a while, if you're familiar with uh, Cold War days and and then the detente phases and then even the end of the Cold War in 1990 and the almost uh, 30 years of the uh, eternal peace in a way which was not quite eternal, uh, uh, then you uh, know that uh, it's hard to think of something really new it might just be new to say what we were used to the previous 10 or 20 years, but not new in the longer historical perspective. So, if you deal with an outright uh, aggressor as we have it now with Russia, unfortunately, one must say, uh, then you have to get your act together and try to forge uh, uh, unity and a coherent uh, and a cohesive alliance. And uh, this is what we see, you know, the people meeting in Brussels or even meeting at at other places in order to allow non-NATO members also to join the club of allies beyond NATO or NATO plus uh, allies uh, from outside NATO to join the club, the front against Russia uh, as a response to show uh, here. should think twice. First of all, to go further down this road, uh, and maybe rethink your strategy in the first place. That it will be hard for you, Russia, Russian government. We have to say Putin and his people, uh, uh, to to get a get something out of it. You know, to to win this whatever that might uh, actually uh, mean uh, will be hard. You know, and this is what you try to do. And uh, this is, uh, I think, uh, the major story uh, behind uh, the first few weeks and months. And uh, very importantly, uh, to come to this as well, uh, we are talking about these groups of of NATO plus friends uh, of uh, uh, some 40, some 50 plus uh, states. So also states that you wouldn't expect to be part of the club. Not all of them are uh, crystal clear democracies, but as long as they are standing against uh, this outright violation of international law uh, by going to war on Ukraine, uh, they are, at least to that degree, uh, part of our club, you know, even if they are from from autocracies you know, as part of the uh, Arab states involved and so forth, you know.
0: Does enlargement carry the risk of turning NATO into a hollow alliance, or what are the risks posed by?
1: Well, the internal challenges. A hollow alliance, I would say, is an alliance uh, that can't keep up to the expectations of, uh, you know, the 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 uh, principle of uh, one for all and all for one in a way. The musketeer principle uh, that is always at the foundation of all kind of military alliance getting together to join forces against an outside uh, potential or real aggressor. Uh, so, uh, of course, uh, the the whole, uh, the enlargement process which we see now is not the first one. The discussion of uh, is it getting too big? Is it by getting bigger and bigger uh, losing credibility? Uh, because the club is getting more and more diverse and you might have uh, challenges at different corners of this club in terms of the map uh, that it uh, includes and uh, therefore, you know, to make a credible commitment to come to the help if somebody is uh, invading uh, state uh, ABC uh, is of course, uh, you know, uh, um, in a way, um, an issue, uh, a challenge. Uh, but uh, there are certain mechanisms, and we might come to this a uh, little, little later. Some mechanisms uh, that run, render uh, these commitments credible uh, on the operational uh, level of policy making. You know, legally, uh, I would like to add that, based on the NATO treaty, uh, you know, uh, nobody is uh, is obliged to do anything. If anybody is attacked, even inside or of the NATO members by an outside aggressor, all that they really legally have to do is to consult. Yeah? If we read the treaty carefully, but of course the political message of Article 5 is if somebody is attacked, we are attacked as NATO. Yeah? But this does not mean that you automatically take a decision to respond in kind so we were used to say already in the 1960s 70s when we were discussing the issues of credibility of nato uh, of nato defense you know basically all the nato members if they uh, have this these weapons at their disposal can decide do they go uh, immediately to use nuclear weapons or they are just uh, sending uh, a letter of regret. Uh, we are so sorry that you were attacked, but we can't help it. You know, legally they can do everything in this kind of uh, span. Uh, however, uh, politically, you know, and then we have some mechanism, as I said, uh, which help to substantiate the commitment and render things more credible by involving states more or less immediately. Yeah. So if we take the examples of enlargement, Sweden and Finland and, say, their immediate neighbors still in the east, the Baltic states. You know, there we have a new example, but an old recipe of forward deployed forces. Yeah, There are brigades or whatever the unit size is of German, of uh, Polish, of other uh, troops look uh, uh, stationed in these countries. Uh, to make sure that, you know, uh, say, if the Russians attack the Baltic countries, they not just attack, uh, attack Estland, uh, uh, Estonia, sorry, uh, Latvia or, or, or uh, Lithuania, but they attack NATO yeah, because NATO forces are attacked. So this is one of the old uh, kind of recipes. We had this already in the uh, Cold War days when we had this layer cakes of troops uh, stationed uh, along the german border or the dividing line the iron curtain or whatever people remember uh, we were referring to uh, that we had this layer cake of troops some dutch some belgium some german some us some british some french some us you know and so forth and so whenever an attacker is uh, is uh, uh, transgressing the borders they they are not just attacking germany or denmark or Estonia, but they are taking NATO. And this is one of those uh, political mechanisms, political decisions, which make then the the, the legally uh, not so binding commitment uh, to come to each other's help actually de facto credible. Yeah, So this would be my account at least of this. So this is an old recipe reinvented now. Uh, however, now, if I say this, this has been well underway Uh, since uh, 2016, so with the annexation of Crimea, uh, not yet with the war on on Georgia, but with Crimea, I think uh, people uh, woke up and said, ah, we have to do something about this. And uh, for example, with the spearhead forces in the Baltic countries, uh, even the otherwise uh, reluctant uh, uh, country Germany uh, to face up to, to Russia was ready to take the leadership in that group, for example, yeah, which was, however, only amounting uh, with a rotating you with know, a rotating principle of troops up to to, to six thousand pe- uh, uh, soldiers. Uh, but, you know, this is nothing that would r- really mean a threat to Russia, although the Russians say, of course, this is a major threat, but how to invade Russia with 6,000 troops. Yeah.
0: All right, so maybe now we can discuss some external implications, um, particularly as it relates to um, the future. So in discussing what the a post-war relationship with Russia could look like Um, What does NATO enlargement mean for that, for for future engagement with Russia Mm. in a diplomatic capacity? Mm.
1: Well, I think uh, those people who are sometimes loved at who say uh, there's ultimately there will be no security in Europe without Russia are right. You know, that was also the premise of the old days when we were getting together in the first of all conference on security and cooperation in Europe later on, the Organization for Security and Cooperation, (OSCE), uh, uh, with a secretariat and the main uh, uh, institutions in Vienna, uh, that we were up to, you know, to have an in- inclusive club, not NATO, not the European Union, but all European uh, uh, states from the, from, not from the Urals to the Atlantic, but from Vladivostok to Vancouver, yeah, this is the, uh, Range of states involved in, in uh, the largest uh, definition of what I uh, what I know about in terms of Europe, you know, European security, and uh, uh, the Russians were part uh, part of it as a successor state to the Soviet Union, uh, which signed the original uh, documents, you know, uh, and this although this these documents, the OSCE documents, aside from very tiny little uh, extra uh, documents are not legally binding, but politically binding, you know, but as a political scientist, I always argue politics comes first. Uh, So, and uh, uh, therefore, as long as as we have the political commitment uh, to the basic rules of the game that were defined by the OSCE or in the OSCE documents, as long as, as people stick to those, we have some kind of European security order in in uh, quotes, you know. So an order, meaning uh, a system uh, which defines uh, appropriate behavior in the uh, uh, in the exchanges between states. And of course, there are many rules you could say, but uh, two pay, uh, principles are standing out. The first of all is the, the renunciation of force. So don't use force in interstate relations, force meaning really military force. Of course you could also say that uh, some uh, political instruments, uh, economic sanctions can be, can be quite forceful uh, political uh, 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 tools, but this is not meant here. Renunciation of force is really about military force. And then the second uh, closely related uh, rule of the game is of course, the inviolability of borders. Mm-hmm. Uh, so borders, if they are going to be changed only peacefully by mutual agreement, as we saw it, for example, in the 1990s, uh, the parting of uh, Slovakia and Czech, uh, the Czech Republic, you know, that was a kind of peaceful change, a kind of arrangement where you draw a new border, but there was mutual agreement. Or, they say the renunciation uh, of Germany. This was the, built on the promise, uh, and on the promise, yes, and on the premise of uh, renunciation of force and inviolability of, of uh, borders, but borders may be changed uh, politically, peacefully. So this is, you know, there are more rules in terms of human rights, etc., cetera, et cetera uh, But uh, these, I think, are the, the core points that has to be mentioned.
0: In today's context, um, has the transatlantic security relationship proven capable of adapting to an evolving world order?
1: Uh, Well, um, this is of course, the world is bigger than Europe, Uh, surprise, surprise. Uh, And here we are really talking about global affairs now. And there we have to realize that uh, after a time when uh, the experts were talking about the unipolar moment, uh, for example, uh, that uh, we have a world order totally or almost totally dominated by the US. US. This has changed again. We are back to a multilateral, a multipolar order uh, where you have, of course, still the US as, as part of the game. We have, whether we like it or not, uh, revisionist power uh, with Russia now. Formerly, a status quo power, changing with the uh, with the start of the of the starting already with with Georgia, I would say, and then two thousand eight and the annexation of Crimea. But then the out, outright war, becoming a revisionist power, and of course we have to uh, always to refer to uh, to China as a second uh, kind of uh, big challenge. Uh, on the block in the far east and as we know they are uh, lining up with Russia and uh, uh, however, uh, we still hope that they have some vested interest in keeping up uh, cooperation with the West, a cooperation in, on all levels in a way and uh, also including economic relations. and uh, therefore we hope that they will sooner or later, not in open diplomacy but maybe behind the scene uh, try to do some good in our sense good for uh, for changing putin's mind to sooner or later stop the war in a way you know and uh, this is of course also part of the game that you have to look uh, at it from a broader perspective. And if you talk about a global order or a global challenge for NATO, yes, of course, we have to say there's Russia, there's uh, China, but there are also other states which are not clearly condemning the war against Ukraine, not clearly condemning the Russians for their conduct. Uh, Like, uh, strangely enough, some of them I found rather strange, uh, which are located in the West, like Brazil or like... Uh, South Africa, or like India, and, and some other states, uh, Saudi Arabia, and so forth, important players, uh, which are uh, in a way trying to run their, their um, uh, special kind of uh, kind of uh, show, and uh, without siding uh, too clearly with one or the other, or if at all, uh, rather. Uh, already condemning uh, parts of uh, the Western policy making regarding sanction regimes and so forth, because these regimes have negative implications for those countries as well. You know, as we had to learn the, the global implications, say only to give or to refer to one example, of course, with the, with the, uh, uh, with the delivery of, uh, of grain and corn and whatsoever, of, uh, of, uh, um, of uh, goods that are important uh, for the people in the so-called third world, in the global south, in Africa, where else, uh, that they uh, get uh, the food from Ukraine and from Russia and uh, if that is not given we know uh, you know those countries are in trouble and this is also you know showing it's not just against uh, it's not just a war against ukraine but its implications you know its uh, repercussions are going far beyond this and really uh uh uh, ones around the globe in a way although of course to a different degree depending on how well off the people and the states are different parts of the world but this is the overall picture uh, where we also have to work on those uh, uh, undecided or you know not clearly on our side uh, uh, forces uh, in order to to uh, avoid uh, strengthening Russia uh, by you know alienating states which, which uh, still have some uh, may be bound to the West uh, despite some critical distance, you know, and uh, maybe there are good reasons uh, because uh, uh, Western states are not always uh, doing good for the rest of the world, you know. Only to uh, to point to the history of colonialism, which is alive uh, around the world, especially in, the, in those worlds which we call the Global South, where they say, you know, uh, let's try out whether China will be doing a better job than the West did, or the Western countries uh, did in our spheres, and uh, some of them have learned that uh, China is not that different from a colonial power than we were in the past, hopefully. But you know, hopefully, I say, because not everywhere we are uh, doing uh, or playing the game according to the rules that we try to promote.
0: I'll turn our focus back now, more specifically, to the um, relationship between NATO and the European Union. Um, is NATO an alternative to European strategic autonomy, or what is the relationship?
1: Um, no. First of all, it's definitely not an alternative, at least not for me. Um, so we have to say, first of all, NATO comes first historically. You know, founded in in in, uh, in the 1940s and the EU, or the European Economic Community in the 1950s, uh, with the help of our friends, uh, the United States. You know, they were already present at the creation of the European uh, integration process and so the the security kind of uh, background and provision of security by the US for Western Europe was essential uh, to allow the European unions to get Member States later on to get them the act together and to integrate as far as they have gone uh, uh, till today. Uh, so, you know, as historically there's a kind of evolution from NATO to the EU and the EU getting an ever closer union as the saying goes in the document to tell us yes, f- fair enough, uh, but the issue that you referred to with the strategic autonomy and the relationship of the EU-NATO it has been with us uh, since at least the 1970s, when the United, uh, when uh, the uh, European Union, still their EC, they are still the European Communities, or only later on, renamed to European Union, uh, that they uh, that they uh, concerned themselves with security issues and said, you know, let's stepwise uh, try to develop uh, the European Union into. A full-fledged uh, political uh, beast uh, including a military dimension. Uh, but this was from the very beginning also inside the European Union a contested idea, uh, not least uh, to diverging uh, kind of uh, positions of EU uh, member states to uh, their ideas about the role of the US in Europe. You know, so I mean uh, constant uh, kind of uh, role of the Euro- of the, of the US has always been uh, to to um, in a way be uh, not a, a european power but a power in europe and an external balancer uh, also um, uh, trying to help uh, to the process of reconciliation of uh, the former aggressor germany the reconciliation of the Western European countries inside the European Union you know to have this umbrella of security provided by the external balancer United States uh, was very conducive to achieve this in the first place and now of course we have the debate of uh, of uh, is it still um, um, adequate uh, to rely on on the Americans uh, do they still want uh, to be a power in Europe or do they have Second thoughts, as we learned it during the Trump years, you know, when uh, Trump said, uh, in a way, NATO is obsolete uh, and uh, we will uh, take our boys and girls home, especially if the Western Europeans or the European Union and member states of NATO uh, at the same time, partly at least to a large degree, overlapping memberships, if they are not willing to pay more for a common defense. Uh, then we might uh, have second thoughts about our own military engagement. But you know, this has been with us as whole debate of how much is enough in terms of burden-sharing, contributions coming from Western European countries to NATO defence, has been with us from the very beginning, from the 1950s onwards. Uh, there was always discussion about in the 1970s that was three percent of GNP should be go into defense. Yeah, and now it's a debate about two percent. Is it big enough uh, to actually build up uh, credible defense against an aggressor like Russia and maybe somebody else uh, we don't talk about? You know, uh, and uh, this is uh, in a way. Uh, an old debate, uh, which is uh, s- uh, which has been with us since the 19, uh, latest nineteen seventies, and uh, which uh, is going to stay, I think, uh, with us for the upcoming years. Uh, there are many ambiguities uh, on the European side as much as on the U.S. side. You know. Of, how much is enough, not in terms of only missiles or fighter planes or tanks, mm-hmm. but also money spent for the common defense. Um, but you know, as exactly this political or these ambiguities may be uh, allowing the political trick to nevertheless stick together, you know, since after all, uh, yes, there are divergences. There are people, there are countries who have never uh, lived up to the promises made in formal documents, contributing X percent of their GNP to defense, you know. Um, but uh, this uh, is uh, is uh, quite normal business. It's uh, I always compare it or, or use the groundhog metaphor, you know, because it's every morning you wake up, you can uh, have another uh, burden-sharing debate in NATO, you know, and uh, force planning and. Uh, And so forth. So you have it every uh, two years in a cyclical uh, kind of uh, evolutionary approach. And this will stay with us, I guess, guess, since we always will have states which are more inclined to say, let's stick to the US, we have to rely on the US, they are the only credible force uh, to guarantee our freedom. And others say, ah, maybe, you know, on the other hand, they are. Uh, they are tempted to do their own business, say, vis-a-vis China, and we, we might be dragged into a conflict which is not our conflict. So all these kind of ambiguities and dividing lines, uh, you, know, you, you, you can read them in today's statements by Macron or other politicians these days. Uh, and uh, still, uh, if you know about the history, uh, there are uh, earlier statements like that. And it has uh, always been part of the game, you know. Uh, that we we uh, you know this is in a way the the, the, the exciting and the uh, the puzzling kind of kind of uh, uh, part of the story. That uh, you know on the one hand we, I think rightly claim that NATO has been the most successful uh, military alliance in history, also the most comprehensive alliance. Not just in terms of military, hard military, but beyond hard military security issues. And uh, on the other hand, we have nothing but ambiguities, you know. But i uh, rather say, let's make a virtue out of necessity. These ambiguities won't get away, but the political management of convergences and divergences inside NATO and inside the EU, this is exactly the trick that allows NATO to survive. It's a political bargain yeah to use the term uh, uh, established by uh, Stanley Sloan from the Congressional Research uh, some uh, decades ago, the political bargain is exactly that you know that uh, we have a multi- uh, multilateral uh, that we have a mutual commitment uh, to uh, align solidarity beyond all existing differences after all, we are living in democracies you know. Uh, it's uh, an alliance. Alliance of democracy is not a hundred uh, percent, or shouldn't be a hundred percent hierarchical order where the boss of the U.S. is giving orders and the others are starting to march. No, uh, we discuss and discuss, and I have divergent standpoints, and this is what we have to deal with. Political conflicts are normal. The issue is how do we deal with these conflicts? Uh, and uh, how do we deal and where we, where, where we end up, allowing us to continue, continue our cooperation in this alliance.
0: Perhaps now you can shed some light on the perspective on enlar- enlargement held by a couple different member states. Um, in particular, you've given the US perspective somewhat, but um, as well as Germany, France, the United Kingdom um, and perhaps the Baltic states.
1: Well, I I think there's, uh, aside from Turkey, everybody is happy that uh, Finland and Sweden uh, are about to join, that they are willing and determined to join uh, in or given uh, the aggression, you know, so this just shows this famous uh, Olaf Scholz uh, uh, metaphor of a Zeitenwende is not just true for Germany, but also for other countries, you know, for Sweden and Finland, that they give up their uh, their historically uh, bound uh, neutrality is a major challenge and a major change of policy making. And everybody welcomes it aside from Russia and uh, 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 of Turkey, since they have their special uh, game to play at least uh, until the elections next month will be over, then maybe we'll see a different standpoint from, from Turkey as well, hopefully allowing uh, Sweden also to join, you know, since these two states are definitely an asset, an extra, an added value to, to NATO, uh, especially uh, regarding the, the northeastern flank of NATO and uh, complementing the whole kind of, if you have a look on the map, you know then there there are no holes anymore in this this, uh, patchwork uh, family uh, making up NATO. Um, So this is definitely uh, welcomed by everybody. And uh, to mention one thing, you know, uh, regarding um, uh, often uh, uh, underestimated also uh, policy change uh, taken by Denmark, for example. Yeah, Denmark has always been a committed NATO member, a true believer in, in, in uh, keeping the US in, in, uh, inside Europe, uh, but uh, they have uh, opted out of the European Union's defense component uh, already uh, with the Maastricht Treaty of 92. And they revised the policy for the previous summer and said, no, now we are also a part of the club of the defense branch inside the European Union and try to, to uh, deal with defense matters, security issues uh, also inside the, the, uh, the European Union, which is in a way harmonizing uh, you know, NATO and EU and, uh, and, you know, the EU is not speaking up as one inside NATO, uh, but NATO members are NATO members if they are meeting in NATO and they are EU members if they are meeting uh, inside the EU. But there are, uh, and there have been uh, for years, uh, regular meetings and also extra uh, summit meetings of NATO officials and EU officials Uh, in order to harmonize both organizations' policy making. You know, these are so complex kind of institutions with such a complex agenda and uh, I would claim the EU agenda is even more complex than the NATO agenda since the EU is about much more than just military security uh, that uh, that, uh, it needs uh, a permanent uh, and uh, and uh, uh, deep structure communications uh, uh, among both institutions on all levels you know so uh, and uh, therefore if we read about disagreements if we read about conflicts, that's all fine with me as long as we end up you know at the end of the day we should be able to to say we are sitting in one
0: Please note that any opinions expressed in the EU Today podcast are solely those of our guests and our hosts, and not of the UNC Centre for European Studies, which takes no institutional positions. Be sure to tune in for more episodes and subscribe to EU Today wherever you listen to podcasts.